Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Content warning. Check the show notes for more information. It's February 6th, 1843. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Ariel. Rebecca and Ollie, the Retrospectors. When the 19th century American diarist Julia Lawrence Hasbrook caught the new show making a splash in New York City, her verdict was pretty lukewarm. Quite droll, she wrote, although she admitted their songs were certainly unique. The performers in question were the Virginia Minstrels, the first recorded blackface troupe who made their stage debut today in history in 1843. Yes, so we're obviously talking about a pretty appalling slice of racist history here, but a significant one. So the team of performers who were behind this was led by Dan Emmett, who was a songwriter who joined forces with Billy Whitlock, Dick Pelham and Frank Brower. And they came up with this program of singing and dancing to the accompaniment of bone castanets and fiddle and banjo and tambourine and called themselves the Virginia Minstrels, the first entire show of blackface entertainment. But they didn't actually invent minstrelsy. That was done by another bloke. Yes, and that bloke was Daddy Rice, was his stage name, amazingly. Uh, Thomas Rice, his real name. And the character that he played on stage in 1831 in blackface was Jim Crow. And if you've only heard the name Jim Crow, as I had in reference to... You know, the racial segregation laws that Martin Luther King was fighting to overturn. It comes as a bit of a shock to realise that Jim Crow was this whole comedy character, essentially. An old, disabled, enslaved African-American performed by a white man in blackface. Because it was Thomas Rice to begin with, but then everyone sort of joined in and did their own version of this trope. And that was so popular that it led to... um, all the elements that you outlined of the minstrel show kind of being performed individually. And it was on this day that Daniel Emmett's company brought it all together. The white clown mouth, the oversized tailcoat, the bone castanets, Mm. the um, tambourine player and the bones player at either end of the group and created what you think of when you think of the minstrel show. Yeah, and I think we're so used to thinking of minstrelsy as being a genre of you know, historical entertainment. It's strange to think that when Thomas Rice started it, this was his thing. He had kind of single-handedly created this style of entertainment that seems so alien to us now. Really popular, in 1838, the Boston Post reported that the two most popular characters in the world at the present time are Queen Victoria and Jim Crow. (laughs) But what I found interesting about it was that his original interpretation of the character of Jim Crow is really different to what minstrelsy would go on to be because, you know, those set formulas of the genre hadn't been developed yet. And his act, he partly based off other stereotypes that were already popular on the vaudeville stage. So, for instance, you had... Um, white frontiersman, you know, the character of like the the sort of blustering pioneer was really popular. So the way that the Jim Crow character worked wasn't necessarily completely based in racial humour. And he did strange things with it. This really gets at the complexities of minstrelsy, particularly in the early years. He was in a fairly straightforward production of Uncle Tom's Cabin, playing Uncle Tom in blackface, Mm. but it wasn't really meant to be 
a parody. It yeah. was just considered something that was kind of okay to do. And then you've got the character playing a character, kind of like yeah. Keith Lemon playing characters or yeah. Edna Everett. Right. The, yeah. the most interesting <laughs> one I found was that he was in a burlesque version of Othello. Just when you think that there's not a twist on minstrelsy <laughs> that would be any less acceptable. Burlesque Othello, everybody. To us now, the outward presentation is so immediately repellent. But if you can look past that... The, the fact that the black characters weren't real did allow more leeway for performers to push boundaries when it came to joking, for instance, about white society. They could tell the kinds of jokes and make the kinds of satire that coming from an actual black performer might have been considered, Edgy. you know, too taboo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, I think that they were responding to the audiences that they were receiving because at the time, like America's cities were really mushrooming after the 1820s and American showbiz was still kind of just built building itself and the the audiences that they were dealing with were these large boisterous kind of almost football crowds who like hissed and cheered and hollered, I suppose so, sort of like the crowds that you imagine in Shakespearean times. Um, and part of what the minstrels were useful for as an act was someone to kind of come in between other acts. And they literally did, you know, regardless of whether a show was banjos or like Hamlet, they'd come in and, uh, and do their routine as a thing that would kind of get the crowd back on side and get them focused again. And then move the show along. But also those audiences, crucially, were white. I mean, they were overwhelmingly yes. white. I mean, for the most part, black audiences either weren't allowed in theatres or didn't have an interest in going because this was the kind of material that was on. Or if they were there in segregated parts of America, they were up in the balcony in the cheap seats. And so when you're playing to the crowd on the stage, you know, racial caricatures didn't have an obvious heckle back from the audience because they were enjoying mm. it because they were all white. And they were interested in seeing black performers not just as an object of ridicule, and I'm not minimising that because obviously there is an object of ridicule there, but also just as an object of exoticism. Mm. You know, some of the white audiences would never have met a black person except when they go and visit and, you know, it's the home help. So they're actually interested in this sort of exotic flavour. Yeah. Let's see how these people live. And of course, they're nothing like how people live, but it was an unthreatening way to engage with that idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it really speaks to the contradictory relationship that white Americans had with black culture. You know, on one hand, there's, there's this widespread fear and hatred towards black people, but also a really powerful fascination with them and their lives and their culture. And minstrelsy really did provide the perfect solution to that, because as you mentioned earlier, it offered white audiences a safe look at black life, one that was curated and obviously presented by white performers. It wasn't actually influenced by black Americans themselves, although there would go on later to be black blackface minstrels. Real Negro delineators advertised themselves. Yeah, as. in order to be taken seriously as minstrels, they had to black themselves up in blackface makeup. That is Just, weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the most famous one was Bert Williams, who, again, looking back from this vantage point, was obviously such a gifted uh, performer. Like He was clearly the standout black Broadway comedian of that part of the century. But the only way that he could make himself known was to do the whole routine, the, the mummy and Dixie and the whole bit. Yeah, I mean, the Virginia Minstrels... Part of their act was, it seemed to be making something that had been a sort of 
I don't know, more um, rough and tumble kind of entertainment that was meant to appeal to these football style crowds, a bit more refined and intended to be played in concert halls. And in fact, it was received that way. One critic wrote that it was chaste, pleasing and elegant. And the harmony and skill with which the banjo, violin, castanets and tambourine are blended by these truly original minstrels in their Ethiopian characters is a redeeming feature to this species of amusement. So people were kind of like, Actually, it's okay. Like, polite audiences, it's okay to enjoy this. Yeah, well, the name Virginia Minstrels was an attempt to give this style a plantation pedigree, wasn't it? A kind of attempt at authenticity. This is what you'd hear if you went to rural Virginia. And they actually went on. Within a year, uh, there was minstrelsy being performed at the White House. There was a concert of a special amusement for the President of the United States, his family and friends, that was done at the White House. And completely uncontroversially... Woodrow Wilson celebrated his success at the Paris Peace Conference ending World War I by enjoying an amateur minstrel show aboard the USS George Washington. There's uh, news footage of Herbert Hoover when he was president-elect clapping and shaking the hands of US Navy soldiers dressed in blackface aboard the USS Maryland. And, of course, that's when there are African-Americans fighting mm. on behalf of the US who also would have been on the ship, and that's the entertainment that was laid on. It, was, it became... Not just an endemic part of American culture, but a celebrated one with an illustrious history, including all the great figures of Hollywood. You know, Judy Garland, Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, all wore blackface. Even Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd were portrayed in blackface. And I think what that misses, actually, is the fact that the minstrel boom, although it was huge, in the 1850s, New York City had 10 theatres dedicated entirely to minstrel shows. But it was actually quite short-lived. And by the 1870s, it was starting to die down in popularity. By 1919, there were only three active troops remaining in the US. And I think it's those uses in film and TV that give the impression that it was very popular for much longer Mm. than it actually was. It was really more about a nostalgia factor. I mean, we don't look at Bing Crosby in blackface and think, oh, what a nostalgic look back to the 1870s. (laughs) But to a cinema-going audience of the time, they weren't looking at minstrelsy as something that was still a popular entertainment. It was something that sort of harked back to an earlier era. But I think that when we see it, you know, it lives on most in old movies and old TV shows now. But I suppose that's also because... It gave way to vaudeville and then stand-up and forms of entertainment that don't have that horrific racist layer superimposed on top of them because the humour that was being deployed in these shows was everything from skits to one-liners and from slapstick to riddles. So you had some people doing this sort of, you know, just wordplay, doing things like explaining that the letter T was an island because it was in the middle of water, that a man who fell off a boat used a bar of soap to wash himself ashore. You know, this sort of language play. (laughs) Arian opening up his very thin volume of funny minstrel jokes there. (laughs) I just find it hard to imagine why you needed to be in blackface to tell well, that riddle. Quite, yeah. I mean, that is the, that is the question. That's the riddle itself. <laughs> Tomorrow. You know, his hectoring apocalyptic style didn't go down well everywhere. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Greater Network.